welcome back to the podcast. My name is Jeff Adams. I'm joined by my colleague, Gareth Ward. And today we're joined by Adam Stern, the Executive Director of Offshore Wind California. Their organization promotes policies and builds public support for responsible development of offshore wind power in California. As a coalition of industry partners, their members are dedicated to providing an independent voice and industry expertise to facilitate offshore wind deployment off California's coast. Adam, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeff, and uh, nice to be with you as well, Gareth. Uh, welcome, welcome, Adam. I, I'm particularly interested in this one. I think offshore wind has a particular pertinence at the moment, and I think offshore wind seems to offer a bit of a beacon of hope in the growth of renewable energy, um, and we're just getting into it down here in, in New Zealand. And to, to paraphrase an article that I, I read recently, that offshore wind can help build a bit of a beachhead in a renewables market that's traditionally been dominated by hydro down here in New Zealand and, and solar elsewhere. And of course, that is all underpinned by coal. And so offshore wind has, has this, well, we have an opportunity with offshore wind just to, to sort of move that away from coal and from the, the, the traditional sort of onshore wind approaches that, that we have. So fascinated to hear what you've got to say, Adam. So. Well, thank you, Gareth. And I think your opening remarks are very aligned with how we view this. Offshore wind is one of the most exciting developments in the renewable energy field. There's so many things to like about it. It complements the solar and onshore wind that we already have here in California. It has the potential to accelerate the retirement of natural gas plants that today are supplying as much as 40% of California's electricity. Uh, unfortunately, that is often in uh, area communities that have historically borne the most environmental burdens in our state and, for that matter, in our whole country. And so uh, there's a job creation element. Uh, all the studies report tens of thousands of job potentials for California alone and more still nationally. Uh, it also has inspired the engineering community in a way to try to figure out all the innovations that are going to be needed to bring this resource to market. Uh, of course, there's a lot of uh, direct experience already in Europe and starting to be on the East Coast of the US. And here's a case where California is actually trying to catch up with some of the things that have happened elsewhere in the world uh, on renewables. But we hope, given our experience and our leadership as a state, uh, that we can deliver on the promise of offshore wind. And of course, yeah. offshore wind works so well in California, doesn't it? Because, you know, it peaks on a nice summer's evening when, of course, your electricity demand is is through the roof. So that's exactly right. In fact, in September of 2022, we came very close to a major blackout statewide uh, for just the reason you're describing. The demand peaks in the late afternoon and early evening that Coincidentally, is exactly when offshore wind is its strongest, and it makes the resource particularly attractive to energy policymakers uh, because they see how complementary it can be to the solar, in particular, where 
we already have substantial capacity, uh, but we can't um, store enough of it to be able to use it in the high demand periods that you just referenced. What, what are some of the challenges specifically that California faces with with opening up and introducing offshore wind? Well, there's a myriad of work streams that have to be organized in a parallel fashion in order to bring this to market. I'll just take off a few of them. Uh, for one, transmission. Uh, that's a problem for all renewables, but it's particularly acute for offshore wind. We need to expand our transmission network and make sure that we have sufficient capacity to bring the power from where the wind is to where the uh, electricity demand is. Uh, second, the permitting process uh, in a state that treasures its coastline and has a legacy of environmental protection uh, needs to be organized in a way so that we can uh, examine all the issues that need attention, make sure that we're doing this in a responsible, environmentally uh, sustainable way, uh, while at the same time uh, coordinating with the federal government, which has its own rules and regulations. Uh, we're hopeful that a permitting roadmap can be developed by the state in consultation with the federal government to create a clear path for permitting. Uh, third, procurement, uh, creating a mechanism to procure power like offshore wind, which has some unusual characteristics. The, the first of which is it comes in large quantities. A single offshore wind farm here is expected to generate a gigawatt or more of power. And you may know that here in our state, we have uh, investor-owned utilities and other types of load-serving entities called Community Choice Aggregators, CCAs, all of which are uh, needing to go through a complicated procurement process. We want to make sure there's a, a mechanism that enables something like offshore wind to be purchased and then allocated to the different utilities that need it. Um, the job and workforce training is another challenge that we face, and I'm pleased to say that many of the state's Biggest unions are big supporters of offshore wind, and they're starting to organize themselves together with community colleges and universities to prepare for the workforce of the future. So I'm down here in New Zealand, the, the majority of offshore wind generation is going to be in areas that have traditionally been around offshore gas and oil exploration and, and uh, utilization. Is that the same over in, in the U.S.? Is that, you know, the, the workforce that are going to perhaps become redundant as, as the need for oil and gas reduces are finding a new work stream, a new opportunity in offshore wind? We're absolutely seeing that. Uh, the some of the companies that are members of our trade group are some of the oil super majors, um, and they are, you know, in the vanguard, taking advantage of their expertise technically, their experience building big capital projects with 30-year or more time horizons, and there are a lot of skill sets within oil and gas that can be adapted to the needs of offshore wind. Uh, it's gonna take some training for sure and uh, you know, rethinking of a bunch of jobs, 
but all the signals that we're getting are that the oil and gas industry can have a big hand in helping to shape this new energy source of the future. Absolutely. And the the ports themselves, are they currently set up for this? Are they, you know, I'm thinking both of the construction phase and the and the transmission side of it and the servicing. Are they, they currently set up? Uh, they're not yet, but they're starting to get ready. And two ports that we're seeing a lot of activity now, especially in the last six months to a year, are the ports of Humboldt, which is adjacent to one of the call areas that has already been leased to two companies to build offshore wind projects. And then in the southern part of the state at Long Beach, uh, which is a huge container port for the United States. Uh, but one exciting development in the last six months or so, they've come out with a very ambitious vision for how they're going to be a staging and assembly port for offshore wind. I was actually down there in early August and had a chance to meet with the officials and see a presentation. Uh, they've designated a 400-acre area of the port for offshore wind assembly. And they've got a very extensive plan now that they're starting to move through the early stages of public review. So um, we're seeing development. To be fair, though, there's a lot more California needs to do. Uh, the state in July came out with a readiness plan related to ports, uh, which said that a multi-port strategy is going to be essential uh, to come up with all the different capabilities that offshore wind will require. Uh, the estimate of capital investment from this particular report from the state was between 11 and $12 billion. So that's a you know large uh, commitment that would be required. But we're starting to see some interest from a variety of legislators and other stakeholders in sort of recognizing not only is this a chance to bring clean energy, but it's a chance to build an entirely new industry to support uh, not just California, but potentially being a global head, global yeah. hub for uh, offshore wind as other countries uh, get interested, particularly in the floating dimension of offshore wind, which is what California is going to need to do. What are some of the technical challenges uh, regarding floating versus fixed infrastructure, if you will? As I, as I understand in other parts of the country, the continental shelf is such that you can go with relatively shallow or the, the foundations are relatively shallow. You can go with kind of fixed platforms. But California, as I understand it, a little bit different. The continental shelf drops off faster. What are some of the innovations that exist now or what are some of the innovations that, you know, or, or breakthroughs that we're looking for in the future to make this more feasible? Well, thanks, Jeff. That's a really important question and one we're seeing tremendous innovation in the engineering sphere around this. There already are working floating projects off uh, the UK, off Portugal, uh, off Norway that provide excellent examples of how this is going to be done in California. Uh, the upper part of the offshore wind turbine is in many ways, exactly the same for a floating project as it is for a fixed foundation. But the floating dimension 
adds a new element, uh, which ironically is going to draw heavily on experience in the oil and gas world, where large floating platforms have become standard for oil and gas drilling. So those platforms will be uh, developed in order to be able to support the enormous weight of the offshore wind towers and turbines. They'll be tethered uh, to the bottom of the sea with guide wires. There's a whole series of companies now that have put forward various models on how to do that. Um, and among the advantages of doing this this way is going to be uh, maintaining and servicing them. So you, you can you can see a future in which when the offshore wind turbines get set up in the array that they are as part of the wind farm, they'll be able to be uh, brought back into port for servicing and uh, uh, any sort of renovation that's required to keep them supporting uh, their purpose of generating clean energy. So there's a, there's a lot of innovation that's happening, uh, and we're very enthusiastic about the kinds of companies that now have uh, secured the first set of leases for California because they have experience doing this uh, in Europe and in other parts of the world, and California is going to be the beneficiary of that. Just touching on something that, that you, you mentioned earlier, Adam, you know, there are environmental impacts of these things, positive and negative. And do they differ between floating and fixed? Well, I think one of the major advantages of floating is it's going to allow, at least in California, the projects to be 20 miles or more offshore. So that right away takes you out of the um, most intensive part of uh, marine life uh, that would be much closer to shore. So that's a major advantage. Uh, at the same time, uh, there are species of fish and birds that are out there, and we need to monitor what's um, the effect that offshore wind will have on them. There are fortunately studies that have already been done in projects in the United States, a study for a, a seven-year review of a project off Rhode Island uh, revealed, you know, little to no impacts on a variety of, of species of marine life. Uh, that was very encouraging to, to uh, hear and to see that confirmed. Uh, but we need to take this deliberately and responsibly. Uh, we are working closely in coalition with environmental organizations in advancing offshore wind. And I'm pleased to say that some of the, the United States' biggest and most uh, respected environmental organizations have signaled uh, support for offshore wind with appropriate protections. And you, you mentioned that the turbines would be deployed, obviously, out at sea and a fairly significant distance out. So then, you know, naturally the question says, great, the power is being generated out there, but it has to be brought to shore. What are some of the challenges or the opportunities that exist of bringing the power on shore and tying it either to the existing grid or how do you envision perhaps the grid being upgraded? Uh, the transmission grid being upgraded in years to come to accommodate this. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. The state of California has an entity called the CAISO, the California Independent System Operator. It manages the grid, and I'm pleased to report that CAISO has been doing 
more detailed studies in the last six to 12 months about how offshore wind is going to fit into the overall statewide plan. And in the central coast of California, uh, we actually, from their analysis, already have roughly five to six gigawatts of capacity there, uh, which ties in nicely with the planned projects off Morro Bay. That's one of the areas that's already been leased by the federal government. Um, in the far north of California at Humboldt, which is where the second area that's been leased, there really isn't adequate infrastructure to support offshore wind on the transmission side. And so um, we're going to need significant investments uh, in the north to do that. Uh, we're seeing, though, an interesting confluence of activity in the northern California and now in southern Oregon, where the federal government recently announced that they are going to move ahead with uh, wind energy areas for southern Oregon uh, that could be the step towards a, an eventual lease auction. If there's uh, activity in Northern California and Southern Oregon, that is going to uh, make strengthen the case for this kind of transmission investment that will be needed to support offshore wind. A uh, lot of moving parts, but I, you know, I'm pleased to tell you that there's uh, a lot of creative thinking going on and planning. And compared to a year ago. Uh, there's so much progress that we've seen in all of the areas we've been discussing, including transmission. It, it's so interesting, too, because ultimately there's three kind of national grids or, or three major components. You've got essentially the East Coast grid, the West Coast grid, and then the Texas grid, to, to make it simple. And then each of those grids, the East Coast and the West Coast grid, are split up into the, you know, are additionally parcelized. So, the good news is, I, I would imagine it gives you essentially some redundancy, gives you a little bit of, you know, okay, if this if there's problems here, we can go around it. So the decentralization can be beneficial, but I imagine at the same time, as you've described, it also can be difficult. It's kind of the blessing and the curse at the same time, where that decentralization helps you in some ways, but it also hurts you in some ways, where, you know, trying to get, you know, radical change, you're dealing with a lot more, uh, a lot more parties and trying to make all that move forward together. I think that's true, and we've been pleased just to watch the uh, state agencies get their arms around this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just the CAISO, but it's also the state's utilities commission, the CPUC, sure. the California Energy Commission, which does a lot of long-range planning for the state, uh, the Coastal Commission, which protects our coastline. All of these agencies are in dialogue with each other, you know, on a weekly, if not daily basis, and they are trying to wrestle these problems to the ground and come up with the right, um, you know, com combination of strategies. And to that end, the state is due in the next few months to release a overall strategic plan. This is part of the implementation of a law that was passed two years ago called Assembly Bill 525. It's California's landmark offshore wind law. And among the major uh, results of that is to be uh, an analysis of all the different requirements from transmission to permitting to supply chain, workforce development, procurement. Uh, all of these are going to be part of that uh, plan, which we expect later this year.
And does that include a, I'm just thinking for the New Zealand perspective, anything like this has a significant um, Maori um, component to it? Do Is there a, this capacity for First Nation peoples to be involved in the development or in, in you know, down here in New Zealand, there's a very you know, important uh, consultation process that, that is gone through to ensure that iwi, the local tribes, are, you know, benefiting, are not missing out, are that traditional Maori values are, are recognised in these developments. Does the same process exist in California? Yes, Gareth, there's been extensive consultation with tribal organizations and uh, other leaders in the state. They've been uh, brought into many of the processes. I'm sure uh, more needs to be done. And uh, one aspect of the strategic plan that I referenced uh, is a requirement to address the needs of tribal nations in our state to support their interests, to make sure that this becomes something that uh, benefits them economically and the communities that they live in. So there's been a dedicated effort on the part of both the state of California and the federal government through its Bureau of Ocean Energy Management uh, to consult uh, with tribal representatives. It's gonna require sustained attention and there's certainly a history going back, you know, 100 years or more where some of these things have not been attended to as, as, as much as they should. So um, the signs are positive, but it's going to take sustained effort and persistence on the part of a lot of stakeholders to ensure that mm-hmm. that consultation is done thoroughly. Yeah, yeah, it, it's similar down here. We, you know, it's a very key part of of any development down here in New Zealand, but uh, yeah, we have you know similar history, I guess, and uh, a lot of effort is required to make sure that that all parties are on board. So that's no yeah, good to hear. Yeah, you know, stakeholder engagement is always so key. I mean, it's it's really the basis of in California CEQA law, California Environmental Quality Act, certainly NEPA on the national on the national front, and. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I'm a big believer that when you can work outward, look outward and, and engage stakeholders much sooner rather than later, it'll, you know, cert- certainly you have a lot of opinions and be factored in and fostered. But, you know, ultimately, you're going to arrive, you know, at a better thing that people can all feel good yeah, about. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Towards that, if we, if we look at one of the stakeholders or kind of a stakeholder, you know, supply chain, supply chains, you know, really kind of come under fire in the past really for the best part of this decade since we've, you know, we can start to talk in terms of that since you know, the, 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 the pandemic started at the beginning of, of or near the beginning of 2020. So, you know, kind of one of the lasting business conundrums that we have for the, you know, for the, for this decade, for the decade of the twenties is supply chain. And, you know, what, what are some of the issues you've seen uh, arising out of this? You know, are we getting away from just just some time delivery? And, and how do you see supply chain issues and getting parts for all of this playing out uh, as, as we make this transition? Uh, thanks, Jeff. You know, it all starts with the ports and the signals and development that we're seeing in Humboldt uh, with the plans there, as well as the plans I referenced in Long Beach 
are really where this will get going. Uh, our membership now as a trade group includes a range of engineering firms, um, different uh, uh, manufacturers of components that will go into offshore wind, uh, other agency, other, other organizations that are are going to be part of the supply chain. I think, frankly, they're just starting to figure out how all this is going to work. And it's it's certainly one of the area, areas that has not been attended to as thoroughly as it eventually will have to be. Um, the potential, though, is enormous. And just one factoid here, I believe a study on the east coast of the United States showed that the 30 gigawatts that's planned on the east coast could produce as much as $109 billion U.S. in mm. supply chain um, impacts or benefits. And that's a number that's comparable to what many people think is going to be the case here in California and by extension up the Pacific coast to Oregon and Washington. So the opportunity is huge. Uh, the players are starting to get themselves organized. Uh, I think if there's some significant early investments and port upgrades, that's going to be the boost that leads to a lot of partnerships and agreements. Uh, many of the engineering firms are starting to pursue uh, potential RFPs for this kind of work. And so uh, we're seeing activity. Uh, I'd say it's it's one area that needs to be amped up some to uh, be able to do this at the scale that's required. And of course, that activity is not only limited to the coast, is it? It's presumably, you know, there will be suppliers all mm-hmm. over the country, all over the world. That, that's great. And that's so true. There's uh, a, a variety of databases now, one by one of our uh, sister organizations, the Business Network for Offshore Wind, which has been tracking uh, supply chain nationally, and they've been looking at where things are being built and uh, properly, you know, promoting this because it's one of the ways to build support for offshore wind to show the economic benefits uh, in individual cities and towns. Absolutely. I do is there the, the, the sort of federal and state commitment to offshore wind at the moment to provide private parties with, with enough surety to, to put in the money that's required? Well, a couple of things there, Gareth, that we've seen that are very promising. For one, the success of the auction that was held last December, which uh, you know resulted in five companies winning leases. That was the culmination of years of work by the federal government in consultation with the state of California to produce that that auction. Uh, now, state of California, uh, roughly a year ago uh, from when we're doing this recording, uh, did a um, set a planning target for offshore wind of up to five gigawatts by 2030 and 25 gigawatts by 2045. Uh, those are really important. Uh, markers to help mobilize this entire industry to focus on those goals. And the coordination between federal and state government, especially uh, since the Biden administration took over in 2021, has been very impressive. I mean, within months of 
President Biden and his team taking over, they were announcing agreements. The state of California, which had been doing a lot of planning, was ready for, um, you know, matching their commitments with plans that California had in mind. And so I think it's actually, when all is said and done, it's one of the best examples of how the federal and state government can work together on a common goal. The the capacity numbers are just they're mind boggling. I, I read recently a Congressional uh, Research Service report from a couple of years ago that said if you were able to utilize all the o- offshore wind capacity, you would generate I think something on the order of seven thousand terawatt hours, which is double U.S. consumption. Now, of course, you don't have to utilize it all at once, and you certainly don't need to utilize it all, but the capacity is there. It's just, it's, it's such a tremendous, you know, we're, we're, this is essentially the frontier. We're on, we're on the precipice of the frontier of, if you can utilize a significant portion of that to find significant as you will, uh, you go a long way in decarbonizing the U.S. electricity grid. Yeah. Uh, that's so true, Jeff. And I think there was a study that the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which is part of our U.S. Department of Energy, did that said that California had as much as 200 gigawatts of capacity. And in the end, in order to reach the 25 gigawatts that is our state target, you know, we're only going to use a fraction sure. of that mm-hmm. capacity. And I think you point to another thing, which is just the um, – the capacity factors relative to a lot of other resources, including other renewables, are you know very impressive and are the kinds of things when you talk to people who are doing energy planning at the California Public Utilities Commission, you know this is extremely an extremely desirable resource to have uh, for just the reasons you mentioned. Absolutely, and to reach the climate targets. You know, it's going to require a total electrification of the power, you know, of of, any, of the whole energy system. And, you know, offshore has to have a, a part to play in that. And electricity demand is going to, was it triple by 2050? I think I read somewhere. You know, we need to find ways to generate a lot of electricity quickly. And cleanly. Uh, and cleanly. And cleanly. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly right. And uh, where I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, we're ground zero for the electrification process. You mm-hmm. drive around here and you see, you know, every third car is an electric one. And I read just recently in the last quarter, I think it was 25 percent of the purchased cars in California were EVs uh, that you need to find some supply to support the growing demand. And we haven't even started to get into the building electrification and industrial electrification, which is a little further behind. So uh, you're right, Gareth. I think the estimates are the electricity demand in California is expected to uh, certainly double and maybe triple uh, by 2050. Offshore wind fits into the portfolio of the onshore wind, the solar the hydro that we still have. Um, so, but it's a it's a critical component to put the pieces together of a clean energy solution for the state and, for that matter, for the whole country. Yeah, for sure. And we're, we're quite similar down here in New Zealand. I, you see, I don't know if it will be 
one in three cars, but one in five probably around town would be an electric car now down here in 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 South, South Island certainly. Um, but and currently our electricity generation is eighty percent renewable, um, very heavily hydro based. Mm. But I think uh, I think offshore wind uh, we're looking at a new one gigawatt. Um, uh, array up off off the west coast of North Ireland. Um, you know we have a very small population here. One gigawatt will go a long way to uh, to filling the gap down down here. Wouldn't uh, wouldn't even break the surface with you guys. But uh... that's still an important point of leadership. It's great to hear that that's happening. One of the things that I um, really celebrate as being part of this growing industry is the collaboration that's happening across states and across countries. Uh, the enthusiasm that you find when you go to a offshore wind conference is, is kind of unparalleled. They're some of the most passionate people who are trying to um, learn from fellow companies, countries, uh, government agencies, and there's a lot of uh, you know, collaboration that is trying to find good solutions for everyone. So uh, you may be in New Zealand in a small country, but there's probably things you're going to learn by developing that one gigawatt project that, you know, other countries uh, with similar conditions could could benefit from. Indeed. And and yeah, it's only going to increase. I mean, I've had this discussion before where we're arguing now, you know, when it comes to electric vehicles about, okay, how do we get over range anxiety? How do we install chargers? You know, and, and these are legitimate questions that need to be answered. But, you know, fortunately, technologies are coming along. But I remind people that if we would have had this discussion 15 years ago, I mean, you know, people would have thought we were talking about science fiction, how far we've come in 15 years. And, you know, the numbers bear it out. Battery storage is, you know, has really dropped almost 90 percent in the last 10 years. Wind generation costs, you know, unit cost, levelized cost of energy, however you want to measure it, have dropped precipitously well well over 50%. Same thing with solar. Uh, you know, we, we are living in a science fiction reality right now, which is which is wonderful. And, you know, th- that's a question I want to ask you is that we mentioned some of the benchmarks as we go forward by 2030, the, the 25 gigawatts by 2045. If you can put your kind of planner hat on for a moment, Adam, you know, how do we get there? What are, what are some of the things, what are some of the challenges that perhaps you see? And, and, you know, what are what are some of the optimistic takes for us to get there? Uh, so I'll give you a little, your listeners, a little memory device. Uh, P3TC. So that stands for procurement. And I spoke of that earlier. We need to find a path to market for the power uh, permitting. We need the roadmap that will synthesize the state and federal processes. Um, we, we need port development as we spoke of, and that needs to be accelerated. Transmission is another key priority, and we're seeing some movement there, but it's got to be faster. And then lastly, uh, what we call in our system here in the U.S. call areas, these are the areas that are designated by the Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management as suitable sea space to enable these offshore wind farms to be built. So those, those five things, and they're some others as well, supply chain, workforce development. We need all of these things to be working on a parallel path so that we actually have a shot at reaching these ambitious targets. And, um, you know, I'm an optimist. 
Uh, I'm not saying this is going to be easy, but with the engagement that we're seeing in California with stakeholders, with unions, with uh, environmental organizations, and the federal and state agencies working together, I, I really do believe this is possible. It's going to take sustained coordination. Uh, it's going to take some uh, additional uh, breakthroughs in terms of uh, how to do some of this stuff at scale. And for California in particular, going big is going to require um, a lot of um, you know, willingness to say yes to things. And um, that is, I think, maybe one of the biggest challenges in, in this. We've, we've got a wonderful state with tremendous environmental resources. Uh, if we don't build offshore wind, uh, we're losing a chance to create one of the best clean energy options we have. I've heard someone from the very respected National Audubon Society here in California say that um, the birds that they're trying to protect and encourage all Americans to protect, you know, won't have a home if, unless we can reduce our emissions. And so they have become, you know, among the strongest advocates, uh, always pointing out that we need adequate protections, and deservedly so, of our uh, treasured marine resources and coastal uh, resources. But to hear that from you know, the Audubon Society to me is, um, you know, indicative of the opportunity here and their willingness to, you know, look beyond uh, maybe some of the traditional positions that organizations like that might take and say, you know, this is our chance um, and we got to move ahead and move move in an expeditious way. I think it's a, it's partly a recognition that actually climate change is is the biggest threat to ocean health. And, you know, a wind turbine may potentially have, you know, a small amount of, of impact, but actually compared to climate change, you know, it, it doesn't even feature on the on the impact that it's likely to have over time. I think that's so true. And, you know, this year of 2023 has been a year of a lot of tragedy, really, in terms of the impacts we're seeing from climate change, from, um, you know, terrible storms to wildfires, uh, things that we never thought were, you know, possible or becoming commonplace here. And I, I, if there's one silver lining in all of that, I think it's proving to be a motivator for people to be drawn to solutions like offshore wind and get behind them uh, because they, you know, it's, it's just right in front of us every day now that climate change is not something way in the future. It's, it's with us today. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, with those threats come great opportunity as, as we've talked about, you know, as we make this transition, decarbonizing of the power industry, the energy industry, you know, the jobs that can be created from this, you know, the, the social ills of environmental injustice that can be cured or reversed or mitigated in some fashion, uh, the investment opportunities, uh, you know, and again, these these are not pie in the sky technologies. These are proven technologies. Now it's just a matter of rolling up our sleeves and getting the job done. But you know, with that, is great opportunity and and great hope. Uh, you, I completely agree with everything you just said. And um, you know, it's it's wonderful to be with two experts in your respective fields who you know see this opportunity. And uh, I I hope your listeners 
will get uh, inspired to become part of this, you know, collaborative enterprise here because there's uh, a, a lot of work to be done, a lot of uh, coordination with different types of sectors that has to happen in order for this to become real. And, um, you know, I, I, I tell young people in particular who are going to inherit the, the world that we leave to them, uh, if you're looking for an industry to get started in on the ground floor, offshore wind is hard to beat in that respect. And, um, you know, and I, I, I think for companies as well, you know, this has so many areas where skills from other types of energy development can be uh, refined and redeployed uh, towards making offshore wind successful. Adam, from your from your mouth to everyone's ears, you know, I'm going to date all of us by saying that that's reminiscent of the movie The Graduate. You know, plastics, right? <laughs> plastics was the late '60s version. Now it's <laughs> offshore. One word, offshore. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Fantastic. Well, with that, uh, Adam Stern, the Executive Director of Offshore Wind California, I thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Gareth, any final thoughts? I am excited to see where this goes, and I, I'm going to hang on to that word you, you used, Adam, of collaboration. I think there's there's opportunities for all in the offshore wind sector, and very excited to see how you develop it in California, what we can learn over over here in New Zealand and what we can contribute as a nation to the uh, the discussion and the development. So thank you, Adam. Well, you're, you're most welcome, Gareth and Jeff. It's been a pleasure to be part of your program. I look forward to future conversations. Fantastic. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. For Gareth Ward, my name is Jeff Adams. We thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us on the podcast next time. Thank you. Mm-hmm.